For us, it really wasn't about uh, contract expiration. What it really came down to was where we wanted to go. Where did we see ourselves five or 10 years from now? And what did we need to look like to remain relevant in the marketplace? That's what drove our decision. It wasn't about contract expiration. It was really, what did we want to be when we grow up? Ultimately, what type of advisors do you want to have working for your wealth program? Because I think every one of our programs is in an evolution right now with advisors that are nearing retirement. We need to replace them. The type of work that advisors do has has shifted through the years. So there's a lot of really important factors that should be factoring into the decision of which broker dealer can best support that growth. The profitability for a financial institution, the devil really is in the details. It is in the fees. It is in the technology, what you're getting, how much it costs, the ENO, what you're getting, how much it costs. I found myself looking at it from like three lenses. One, what are the members experiencing? How are they engaging the broker-dealer? And then there was the advisors. What tools did they have? How are they running their business? And then there was the program. How much money are we paying for the broker-dealer services? What is the tech feeding? And what is their privacy policies? And how are they protecting our data that we're sharing with them? If you're sending an RFP to a broker-dealer and it was the same RFP from three years ago, it's out of date. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Stathis Mattel Industry Leadership and Success Podcast Series. I am Bob Mattel, and I am the co-producer of these podcasts. This series focuses on industry-leading performance, success stories, and key business intelligence that will help you meet your leadership objectives. In this episode called Executing Effective Broker-Dealer Due Diligence, we will talk with industry executives who have recently conducted broker-dealer due diligence projects. We will discuss lessons learned and extract best practices. Our host today is Scott Stathis. Scott and I would like to express our sincere appreciation to our friends at Ameriprise Financial Institutions Group for their support in making today's episode possible. And now I'll turn it over to our host. Take it away, Scott. Hello, everybody, and welcome. I am Scott Stathis from Stathis Partners. I'll be the moderator of today's discussion on broker-dealer due diligence. So our panel, who will introduce themselves in a moment, consists of four executives from the Financial Institution Channel, three of which are investment program managers who have recently gone through broker-dealer due diligence initiatives, and one whom is an executive with a broker-dealer on the other side of the RFP equation. So our objective today... Uh, is to provide useful insights into what constitutes an effective broker-dealer due diligence process and which parts of the process provide the most decision-making value. As many of you that are listening know, I've run broker-dealer due diligence projects for, for many banks and credit unions, and I'll provide some insights along the way. But as it relates to the institutions represented by our panelists, there's only one that I've worked with in this regard. So we're going to get a variety of, of uh, input and, and views on the process and what parts of the process have been most effective. So let's have our panel introduce themselves. We'll do it in alphabetical order. And let's start with Ed. Thank you, Scott. I'm Ed Bronnenberg. I'm with Randolph Brooks Federal Credit Union. I'm the SVP of QSO Operations, and I oversee all of our for-profit arms. We currently have eight QSO operations. Uh, we have 12 advisors. Uh, year to date, our gross 
revenue is 3.7 our million our net revenue is 1.2 million and our AUM is right around 150 million in assets all right thank you Ed Jay uh, Jay McAnally I work with the Ameriprise Financial Institution Group I've uh, been in the business for a couple of decades started as a financial advisor multiple different roles within uh, the organization was part of the investment professionals acquisition into Ameriprise probably worked with over 200 different institutions in some sort of due diligence slash conversion over the last couple of decades, uh, the topic we're going over today. So happy to be here. All right. Thanks, Jay. Kyle? Hi. Uh, good afternoon. Kyle Stroud. I'm with Centennial Bank and Centennial Financial Services. We uh, are a $17 billion bank based out of Conway, Arkansas, that has grown substantially in Florida. So we have 18 financial advisors, and we are just under a billion in AUM. Uh, Year-to-date GDC is uh, through July right around $3 million, so we're tracking to do about $5.1 million in GDC this year. Excellent. Brian? Hi, everybody. My name is Brian Venn. I'm with California Credit Union Wealth Management. We're based in Southern California, San Diego, and Los Angeles. We have around three quarters of a billion dollars under management. We've done in last T12, maybe three million uh, with 11 financial advisors, and we just went through a conversion. So hopefully that number stays as flat as it can. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, so let's let's kick off the discussion kind of with a high level question. And like I said, I've I've gone through a lot of these broker dealer due diligence initiatives, and typically, but not always, they're uh, inspired by contract expiration that's coming within the next year. However, that's not always the case, right? There are other factors that influence the need to initiate a broker uh, dealer due diligence process. So. You know, maybe, Ed, you can kick us off. When you went through it, either the one that you recently went through or any other ones, what are the other important factors that that cause you to uh, launch a due diligence initiative? For us, Scott, it really wasn't about uh, contract expiration because we we were, at this point, when we started looking at, do, at possibly making a conversion, we really were in our 19th year of our contract, and it was just kind of a, an imperpetual uh, piece at that time with just a 90-day notification to get out. So it really wasn't about contract expiration. For us, what it really came down to was where we wanted to go. Where did we see ourselves five or 10 years from now? Where did we see the industry, especially from a financial institution standpoint, going? And what did we need to look like to remain relevant in the marketplace? and see consistent growth within our client base. And so that sparked our outward search uh, for other broker-dealers. Our current broker-dealer partner was was good and helped us get to where we were, but we wanted to make sure that we were seeing what we perceived as to be you know, top of the table, best service available, and especially someone who had a roadmap that looked similar to what we envisioned where we wanted to be five or 10 years from now. Um, and so that really started our search and, and kind of led to the, the lengthy process of that. But that's what drove our decision. It wasn't about contract expiration. It was really, what did we want to be when we grow up? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting uh, how often I get involved in these due diligence projects and the firm that I'm working with doesn't have that vision in mind of where they want to get to, what do they want to be when they grow up, uh, which is critical 
when you're assessing broker deals because you want to choose a broker deal that will truly partner with you to help you get there and achieve that vision. So it's it's always shocking to me how often that is not the case. And so I think that's you know one takeaway. Just make sure you have not only a really well-defined vision of where you want to get to when you're launching a due diligence process, but also ultimately what type of advisors do you want to have working for your wealth program? Because I think Every one of our programs is in an evolution right now with advisors that are nearing retirement. We need to replace them. You know, the, the type of work that advisors do has has shifted through the years. We're not transactional anymore or we shouldn't be. You know, so there's a lot of really important factors that should be factoring into the decision of which broker dealer can best support that growth. So um, thanks for that input. Um, Kyle, maybe you want to give us your, your thoughts on the same question. So I've been with Centennial since... Oh nine. We've gone through three different broker dealer changes. The first one, we were a small program. There were the management didn't really care about the investment piece because they were just a small bank and they were growing so fast it just wasn't a focus. And there was only two reps. And so I just felt like I guess management didn't feel like we were getting that much attention from the broker dealer at that point. We then made a decision like Ed did, where they said, Look, let's let's have a change. It came from the bank. It wasn't a forced change. It wasn't anything that we had to do. We just wanted something different. And at that point, it was all about recruiting and growing the program and getting it to, to scale. And a small boutique firm out of San Antonio, IPI, provided that. They, they were the ones out of all the broker dealers. They were the ones that really showed the bank that they could, hey, we can really hire you know this program. We can get it to 18, 19 reps. When we were with IPI, they did that. That's when I became program manager. And IPI was great at recruiting. And this is no knock to Jay whatsoever. He's on this call, but it was transactional reps. You know, they were traditional bank advisors. We had 19 transactional reps and then IPI got acquired by Ameripride. And so uh, the good part about that was there was 18 months that went by between the time that Ameripride announced that they were going to acquire the broker dealer that we were with to the time that we converted. And so it gave me as a, bro- a program manager, I'm a producing program manager, so I have clients of my own. And so it gave me a, a chance to reflect on my own business and where I wanted to be as an advisor, but also kind of where I wanted the, the program to go. And I, I did have preconceived notions about Ameriprise, which were actually positive because the only Ameriprise advisors I knew were very large fee-based producers. And so it, it gave me 18 months to not only make a decision for for the group that stayed with us, which it got down to 11 people from 19, but also where I wanted to be, you know, because I was a transactional advisor at that time too. And I wanted to, to change. I wanted to go into a different direction. Well, just that having that knowledge of where you want to get to is, is important. And so uh, this is a really good transition for me to pass it to Brian. Now, Brian is the, the one person on this on this webinar who I have worked with and and we were teammates uh, through the process and I really enjoyed working with Brian and one of the reasons I enjoyed working with Brian is because he had a very specific vision of where he wanted to take the program um, that absolutely had an impact on our decision making process so Brian let me let me pass it to you for for the same question and maybe you can give us some insights I'll start by saying, you know, to answer the original question, it wasn't a contract-related timing decision. Uh, I'm relatively new as a program manager. I come from big bank brokerage, so the credit union world, 
the smaller team kind of I had more control over decisions was a new environment for me. And I, you know, I rolled in and just kind of observed, like, what is the team doing now? How is our current broker dealer supporting that process? The interesting thing is I followed the guy that retired and the leadership here knew that the program had to go in a different direction. So they, they wanted it to become more of a planning focus, consultative, at least that's what maybe they read that somewhere and said, this is what it should look like. I think it's kind of what it felt like, but they really didn't know what that meant. Right. So uh, they went and looked for a guy that really, that was part of their DNA. And I would label myself as that kind of former advisor and now leader uh, a few times over. I always, that was, that was the process that we engaged members. And so I came in and just observed, do I have the team that is delivering like that? And do I have a partner and a broker dealer that, that is delivering like that? And unfortunately, it wasn't exactly what I envisioned. And so, you know, that's when I started calling my friends like Scott Stathis and said, hey, this is not exactly what I thought, you know, what I need, what do I do about it? never been through an RFP process before. I'm just an old advisor with stripes on my shoulder. Didn't know what an RFP process was, what it should look like. And so um, when I mentioned this to the leadership here at the credit union, you know, they've got vendors, right? They have a process. It's a big enough entity where they've gone through these kinds of, and so the first thing they said is, you have to go through an RFP and, and we'll give you one uh, that's worked for another vendor. And then, you know, five minutes later, I have this like, 200 question RFP in my inbox going, uh, I'm not sure, you know, what did I just do to myself, right? Uh, and so, uh, fortunately, I had some resources in my life that, that could at least help me understand what that process looks like. Uh, otherwise, you know, it, it may have been, frankly, too daunting for me to take the, the firm through. But, to, you know, to sum it all up, we needed to make a change in how we delivered advice. I could personally do that by coaching them one-on-one, -on -one, which I did and am doing now, but I, re I really needed a partner that could help me with that effort. And that was the primary reason I went out and looked at what else was out there. Yeah, and one of the things that I remember, Brian, and I've used this quote several times that you, that you said to me during the process is that I, I don't wanna be a credit union investment program I want to be a true wealth management program that just happens to be in a credit union. And that's very different perspective. And it's not an easy vision to live up to if you know the history of our channel, but you came from a program that essentially was doing that and you had a vision and you're executing that vision and doing very well. So uh, so congratulations. So, so Brian, you mentioned something that I'd like to dive into next, and that is the process, right? Because many people in our channel think that a broker due diligence process is all about the RFP, right? And they even call it an RFP process. Uh, my opinion varies from that a little bit. Not that the RFP isn't part of the process, but it is just that, a part of the process. There are other very important elements in the process. So Maybe, Kyle, let me kick it back to you, and then I'm going to come back to you, Brian, for, for this next question about the process, um, and that is this. So, Kyle, if you can kick us off with this. So, what are the various stages of, of the process that, that you implemented when you were looking at the due diligence of, of broker-dealers? Was it just an RFP? Was it more than that? And what, you know, what parts of that gave you the most decision-making insights? 
you know, I, again, I was I was probably more uh, like Brian with the fact that I had not done this before. This was a little bit of a new new thing for me. I've learned a lot because we just renewed our contract with Ameriprise and there were some changes that were made because it was designed for a program that was small and transactional. And now we're a little bit bigger and more fee based. So uh, I've learned a lot about details, which are important because I do feel like the profitability for a financial institution, the devil really is in the details. It is in the fees. It is in the technology, what you're getting, how much it costs, the ENO, what you're getting, how much it costs. So like those details are, are very important to go through, but those are some of the last things that I would, I would look at, right? The, uh, for me, it was, I had a long time to do it. I had a year to talk to, you know, three or four different broker dealers. Having said that, I already knew that it would be easier to go through a conversion from a, 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 an IPI that was acquired by Ameriprise. I realized it was going to be easier, but the technology piece, uh, technology and recruiting, I think, were probably the most important things for what I felt like our program needed, right? Because we had just gone through that 19 to 11 advisors cut, and I wanted something different for the program. And the arrangement that Ameriprise presented to me was the best situation that I, you know, that I could find as far as being able to present a package to recruit a wirehouse advisor or an independent advisor, you know, and uh, I guess I'll just end with saying the most important part for me was it was absolutely the technology piece, but also what kind of people we can recruit and bring in the bank, what kind of advisors can come work for us and elevate the bank's, the, the bank's brand. Well, and, and thank you for that. So, Brian, because we work together, I I know there were a variety of elements to our process. Do, do you want to give us a, an overview of that and especially the elements that seem to be most important? And I have some notes with me, too, just to refresh my memory of what we went through. So if you need me to assist, I, <laughs> I'm happy to do that. But, uh, yeah, why don't you talk about that that, that process that uh, that we worked through? I'll start by saying I, I knew what I wanted. And one of the things that you coached me on early in the process is put it on paper. Like I knew in here, you know, I, I wanted to be consultative. I wanted to leave with the plan. I wanted to have a heavy implementation of advisory and make sure their client, their members insurance is right. Like I had my, the member engagement process down, you know, after reviewing the process, I found myself, Early on, I was looking at it from an advisor's perspective, the whole transition. What does the advisor need, right? What is that engagement? The RFP itself, uh, which was basically just a list of how do you handle this broker-dealer? Like, what are your fees? Like, what is your resources around planning? What does your advisory platform look like? Like, those are the RFP questions. But there was a lot on that RFP that I knew nothing about. And, it, and would never know to ask, like, how do we, con you know, what's your tech connectivity so that we can get data feeds into our, you know, bank system? Like, I, I didn't know to ask that question. And so it was kind of me saying, you know, strategically, this is the, this is where I want to go. And then there was the RFP slash status process that made it like, like the mechanics of it, uh, which I appreciated. I know I fought you along the way, right? Like, why? Well, you always wanted me to be objective. I found myself being very 
I played favorites early, right? Here's who I think we're going to end up with before we even started the process. Uh, and you're like, no, 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 I have an objective system. And I know I was like rolling my eyes about that. Like we got to measure all these different factors. That, that process of, okay, I need to look at this. I found myself looking at it from like three lenses. One, what are the members experiencing? The advice that they're getting and the tech what are they seeing technology-wise? What is their online? What do their statements look like? How are they engaging the broker-dealer? And then there was the, the advisors. What tools did they have? How are they running their business? What kind of support are they getting, coaching? And then there was the program. How much money are we paying for the broker-dealer services? And what is the tech feeding? And what is their privacy policies? And how are they protecting our data that we're sharing with them? Like that stuff, I, ne I would never would have asked Jay and his team, how you protect our data? Uh, like uh, I never had that question ever in my life, but as a program manager, that was an important consideration. And so you really have three customers at this broker-dealer selection. You've got your clients and what they're experiencing. You have the advisors, which is really kind of the primary audience of the broker-dealer. And then you have the program and the credit union or the bank that is the client of the broker-dealer, and they all have different interests. So we started at a very high level with a lot of names, five or six. We narrowed it down to three pretty quickly, and then we went super deep with those three multiple meetings. It was a, it was a good experience. And I had about, Kyle, I had about the same amount of time, right? About nine, 10 months to get through it. Yeah, so we'll, I'll give, um a little more insight into what we went through. There was the pro forma phase that allowed us to do some filtering, which I can talk about in a second too. So I'll give you a little, a little bit more insight before I do, and I want to get your, uh, your input on the process as well. And then Jay, I have a question for you that comes from a little bit of a different angle. But Ed, let me, let me pass it to you to get your, your insights on the process as you executed it. Yeah, thank you. I'll. I'll echo quite a few things Kyle and, and Brian have said, but we had a little bit longer time. We actually took our time because we wanted to make sure, even though you know you try to be as mistake-free in the process as you can, um, we wanted to make sure that we took our time and made the best decision we we wanted because we don't want to change partners. You know, we we want to be with our broker-dealer partner 10, 15, 20 years, and then and then you know look look from there. And so we wanted to make sure we had the right decision. So we really we took about 18 months from start to finish on the project, um, and we did very similarly. We started with an RFP and pro formas, and and took that from about six down to three. <clears throat> Once we got down to our three, we really roped in quite a few people from the credit union. We have our own marketing team. We have our own technology team. We have our own compliance department for the QSO. We didn't necessarily bring the advisors in, but I brought the program manager in. And so when we narrowed it down to the three, that's when we started having each of the department heads meet with the other department heads at each of the broker dealers and really dive into the questions that I, you know, I had a hundred thousand foot level, but I couldn't get you down into the weeds on any of those subjects. And so I had each of them sit down with with each of those departments and come back with of the three what were the you know what were the deal breakers what were the the high performances in certain areas for their specific categories and then we scorecarded all of those and then we sat down and we took that to our executive management team um, as well as our QSO board and we had discussions with them 
we were right in the middle of COVID, so we couldn't actually do physical visits with the broker dealers. We we were able to do one, and then COVID shut it down. So we did virtual visits with each of the broker dealers, had them visit with our executive teams as well, and then give their formal presentations. And then based on our scorecard and and the opinions of the executive team, we came to our final decision. But much of that was driven by each of the department heads and their scorecards in regards to what were deal breakers. Um, Some really big pieces for us were in the marketing and the technology side. That's where it really came down. Uh, Most everybody was pretty in line uh, with compliance fees. Those were all fairly close. There wasn't a whole lot of difference there. The fees were different in some areas, but not not drastically. For us, what it really drove down to was the technology platform, the delivery to the client, and the marketing capabilities that we had. And that's kind of what drove our final factors. But we we went through a long process and incorporated a, a big team. And if you have the capability to do that, I would suggest doing it because once you start getting into that conversion process, is not the time you want to find out that, hey, your partner said they could do this. But when you did, you took a deeper dive, you didn't realize that, hey, this actually was going to be an integration problem. So, you know, the more detail you can get up front, the better you're going to be. Yeah, it's interesting. I'll give I'll give you some insights from a variety of these projects that I've done, and, and starting at the top down, but it incorporates a lot of of what the three of you just said. So, you know, the the first and most important thing to initiate a project is to have a clear vision of where you want to take the program. Obviously, right? We talked about that, and if you have that vision, there are going to be a set of strategic uh, initiatives that you have to launch in order to get there. You need to define those. You know, what Brian said before is uh, I kind of forced him to put stuff on paper. Well, this is some of the stuff you want to put on paper, right? So what's your vision? What are the most important strategic initiatives to get to that vision? Um, And then you can use that to say, all right, well, then what are the most critical decision-making factors as we go through this process? And if you do those three things, essentially in that order, then you have a good foundation to launch the project. So then you put a project plan in place that includes the, you know, kind of the milestones with target dates next to each one of those milestones. So you have a track to run on and you know when those, you know, the, the incremental deliveries should be met. And then what I typically like to do is phase one before an RFP is even sent out is what I call a pro forma exercise. So based on where you are today as a program, the number of advisors you have, your AUM, the number of clients or members you have, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, and one other thing, and the most important strategic initiatives that you that you have uh, to get to your vision, you put that in front of the, the broker dealers that are in contention and say, give me your five-year projection based on where we are today and where we want to go. How do you think we'll be able to get there? What does that, what does the projection look like from a revenue standpoint? Um, and what resources would you be able to uh, apply to our situation to help us get there, right? So that's a kind of a, a simple but very insightful exercise because the feedback you get is very interesting from the from the broker dealers because it's it's often that you're going to get a variety of uh, pro forma responses and a variety of opinions on what it's going to take to get to where you want to get to, and that's a great part of the assessment. So we do that, and then uh, we we sometimes use that as a screening if we're starting with let's say six broker dealers then we'll screen out maybe two to three of them and the the balance get the full rfp and we create what i call an assessment grid and it sounds like ed you do you do a scorecard so the assessment grid is probably similar it is a grid it's a spreadsheeted grid that has 
usually between 50 and 60 critical decision-making factors. Each one of those are weighted. They get a weighting. And then each one of those get a rating. Each decision-making factor gets a rating based on what we learned through the process. And that weighting times the rating equals a score for each of those 50 to 60 decision-making factors. And each broker-dealer has a column there, right? So at the bottom of that spreadsheet, you have scores for each broker-dealer. And that's an important part of the decision-making process. It doesn't make the final decision, but it gives you a lot of insight into what that decision should be. And you know, the other thing we do is in tight races is reference checking. We right, we'll call program managers in the industry that we know that are working with certain broker dealers and say, hey, here's you know where we are with this initiative. Here are the things that are important to this credit union or bank. Uh, do you feel the broker deal you're working with will be able to deliver on helping this institution get there? So that reference checking piece is is pretty important as well, you know, and then you make your final decision. So that's kind of the, the process that we implement. Brian and I went through, went through that process, but there's, so there's a, there's a lot of meat there and there's a lot of insight you get through different phases of that process. So now that said, uh, Jay, I want to, I want to flip it over to you. So we, we've mentioned the RFP as a core part of the process several times, but I kind of know, you know, from your seat, when you get an RFP and I'm not, talking about Ameriprise specifically, I'm talking about every broker dealer, there's a lot of canned responses that go into, into that RFP. So it's basically copy and paste from other RFPs that you've done, right? I've seen enough of them to know that those, <laughs> those answers look pretty familiar every time I, 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 I launch one of these, these RFPs. Now, that said, I'm not saying the RFP doesn't provide some good insight, because it does, and you have to think pretty strategically about what questions you want to ask in the RFP. Uh, but in my mind, the RFP isn't the be-all, end-all. There are other things that are important. So, so, so the question to you, Jay, is how critical do you think the RFP document itself is in the process from a broker-dealer standpoint, A, and then B, are there other good ways to uncover the most valuable aspects of a broker-dealer if you, Jay, were on the other side of the equation, right? If you were, if you were a, a a bank or credit union looking to do this process, so we're so I'm looking for you know some inside information from you because of the 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 perspective that you have. That makes sense. Is that fair enough? That question? Yeah, absolutely. And I I, I think most of the uh, uh, and it's a good question, Scott. Most of the answers have probably already been given through some of the responses. But I would tell you this: if you're sitting on RFP to a broker dealer and it was a same RFP from three years ago, it's out of date. I mean, half the questions are out of date and it's missing the other half that you need to ask. Yep. I think Ed said it before, bring in your executive team in and your business partners as part of the process is critical early on because it's just, today's just a technology advanced world. You've got to make sure there's compatibility in all different areas. The best RFPs that we receive as a broker dealer is when the institution has said, here's who we are, this is what we're looking to do, and they kind of tell you, and then when you answer the questions, they shouldn't be canned. They should be more about, this is how we would accomplish your goals in this area, and not all questions are created equal. You know, when you're doing that scoring, some more baseline that are just, they're, they're kind of yeses and nos. Do you provide this? Do you not? What is this price? What is this fee? And on the other questions, it's kind of like a survey. We've all sent out surveys before and we get back answers. What's the most important part of that survey? 
it's the comments. When you get to read the comments about what people are actually saying. And so it's answering those questions. But when you ask your the broker-dealer RFP process to kind of put it in, well, I've had it before where they say, just make sure the answer fits in this box. <laughs> and you're like, you know, you, you really want to have that how part and the who. If you're really getting on, you know, you were talking about the pro forma, Scott. If a broker-dealer is going to say, this is what we think we can do for you, the question you need to say, that's fantastic. Well, who's going to do that? I'd like to meet them and tell me how they've done it in the past so that who and why are, is, it, they're outside of the questions. But you can ask people to, to put that in, the, in as part of the answer in the question, not just what's the pricing or what's the technology, but how do you support the technology? So I, I would say not all questions are created equal. Uh, the more information that you give that you're expecting from your, your BD on what you're looking for, I think allows them to respond more accurately. If you get a canned response, realize that's probably the the type of institution that you would you would get with this canned answers. And um, and the faster you get your business partners involved, the better your RFP will be because they know the latest and greatest questions that need they need to ask you as a partner for the institution. So uh, yeah, I'll, I'll end with what I said. With if you're using an RFP that's three years old, you need to uh, you need to throw it out and start over again. Yeah. Yeah, and there, there's an RFP floating around our channel that's been floating around for a long time. But I, I know it's used a lot, and it's a standard stock, you know, RFP. And what, what it doesn't do is incorporate the first few things I said before, and that is the vision of where you want to take the program, the strategic initiatives that are going to help you get there, uh, and, and and what the most important decision-making factors are for you as an institution. Once you define those, then you have to create questions in the RFP based on those, right? Mm-hmm. You're not going to get that with the stock RFP. So so that's critical. All right. So you guys have mentioned technology several times, right? So, so there are two things that it seems are becoming more and more important. Well, one of these two things anyway, becoming more and more important in the decision-making factors. The first thing is and Brian, maybe you can kick us off on this again, but give us your thoughts on how critical a, what I'll call a cultural match is. So every institution has their own culture that they want to maintain. And when you bring in a broker dealer, either that broker dealer is going to adapt to your culture or you're going to adapt to the broker dealer culture. Sometimes that's more appropriate, right? I mean, and other times not, but so anyway, so two, the two things that are becoming more and more impactful in these processes are the cultural match and the technology platform, because now technology is one of the primary differentiators in our industry, not only from the standpoint of a bank or credit union working with the broker dealer, but the client experience, the end client experience, right, is critical, as is the advisor experience. So technology is becoming more and more of a player in the in the decision making process. So so maybe uh, Brian, you can you can kick us off with this uh, question. How important was the cultural match, uh, and how important was the technology platform, and and you know kind of what was your assessment of that as you went through the process? Well, to answer the first question, the cultural match was important to the people around me, but it wasn't so important to me because I knew what we needed, and it, frankly, the the previous decision of the broker dealer that we were with was almost entirely because of culture. Uh, But the previous selection of broker-dealer was done because they left a big broker-dealer and went to a small one five years before I got here, or six years. The challenge that that I had to work through is I knew we needed something bigger than that to go where we wanted to go, which is why we ended up with Ameriprise, one of the main reasons. And so 
culture is it's a big big part of the conversation, but the capabilities and what we're delivering to the members is what was more important to me. The, the, the first that answers your first question, the technology question. I, I make jokes about this. When I first got here, I was listening to Kyle talk about your your old transactional world. That's what this place was, is a collection of transactional advisors. And not only were they transactional advisors, but they were literally doing business with paper and checks. Like if they were buying something, mutual fund or whatever, they were opening an account directly at a mutual fund company and they were sending the application and a check to some random place in the United States to buy this mutual fund. And I can remember like looking at one of my sales assistants and watching her process this transaction and sitting there and going home and just sitting in my lounge chair, just like, oh my, you know, what am I going to do? Because there's no way we can grow with this like mechanic on doing business. I'm, I'm asking my advisors, why didn't you just open a brokerage account, pull the money over from the bank and place the trade and the client, you'll have it on the spot. The clients will be able to see it the next day. And they looked at me like, what, you know, that doesn't, you know, but that's more expensive than a direct. I mean, I'm like, there was a lot to change here. So the technology for me, you know, it was, it was a critical piece. Obviously we need to modernize the way we did, we did business. Our basic brokerage business had modernized the way we, the way we did uh, reviews for clients. It had to be, modernize instead of pulling up an Excel spreadsheet and showing how their accounts mixed together on the Excel, which is what the good advisors were doing for these client reviews. Like, bless their hearts, man. I mean, uh, this this dude rolled in and said, this, is, this needs to be different. Like, operations needs to change. Your, the way you do reviews needs to change. The way you look at portfolios needs to change. And the whole team just kind of looked at me like, uh, can you go back where you came from? Like, you're back. Uh, but now, you know, once they saw here, let me help you through this. Like, let's do it together. And once they saw this is how it can be done and this is how it's done elsewhere, uh, go find somebody that can do this for us. And then they got on board. So the technology was key just to make us more efficient. Now I feel like, frankly, we can scale way high. Like we were capping out way too low of a, a revenue per advisor, primarily because of the lack of technology in our life. Yeah, I, I, Brian, I can't tell tell you how many times Brian said to me when we were working together on this, he, he, keeps, he kept on saying, I feel like a bull in a china shop here. I'm just coming in and wrecking things. <laughs> he, he got a lot of resistance at first, but then it all stopped and people started saying, well, hmm, maybe he has some points here that we should listen to, right? So it's, a, it's interesting being a disruptor is not easy, but you kept on pushing that rock uphill, and and uh, you're you're being more and more successful because of it. So so good for you, um, Ed. So same same question. How important were the the cultural implications and the or cultural match and the and the and the technology in your decision making process? Uh, very important for us. I mean, it was a little bit of a reverse approach from where Brian was, only because from a credit union standpoint. We tend to be a larger credit union. We're about 13 billion. We have about a million members. We have 60 branches between three major metropolitan areas, San Antonio, Dallas, Austin, and now Corpus Christi in Texas. So the credit union takes a very aggressive approach and has for quite a while. They've had 
every all of the lending pieces that we do, whether that's commercial, send, um, member driven, or mortgage, it's all centralized. So when you go into any of our branches, there is no lender at the branch. They sit down in front of a computer, and then the central lender handles everything for them from there uh, electronically. And we've been doing that as a credit union for about ten years now. And then advanced to DocuSign and those types of activities. So from a brokerage standpoint, the investment standpoint, they were behind the times uh, because our previous broker dealer was trying to catch up to that kind of a structure. And that was important to us was to be able to give the same type of delivery to our member on the investment program, you know, the wealth management side as they were getting on the on the financial institution side. And so we had to look at who was going to help us get to that delivery channel. What was also so from a cultural standpoint, that's kind of where that 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 drove us. Who delivered that professional on the spot, anytime uh, delivery channel to the member and who could culturally fit with us. And so that was a big driver. When it came to technology, that obviously was gonna play a big part in that. We wanted uh, a solution that would help us provide financial solutions to our members almost 24 seven. If they wanna do a face-to-face, if they feel like they need a face-to-face relationship, then that's fine, let's, let's set up an appointment Let's let's do the face-to-face relationship with an advisor. But if you don't want to wait four or five days for a face-to-face appointment, if you want to do something now when you're in the branch or you want to do it when you're at home, then we needed a, a, a central area that they could go to. And at 7 o'clock at night, reach one of our advisors, begin a planning process with them, um, start that process, and then be completely interactive. Whether they're doing it on their own or whether they're doing it with our advisor, we wanted an interactive approach where – you know, the advisor could see what they were doing. They could see what the advisor was doing. The whole thing was seamless and could be done at any point in time. And so that's we that was where we wanted to go. And our previous broker dealer, when we first approached them, kind of thought we were radical in our approach. And that was their that was their comment. And that kind of opened the door to us to say, maybe we need to do an RFP. Maybe we need to look at who else might be out there because this is where we see things going. And that opened the door. But that was very important for us was being able to get that full delivery uh, and and who could help us establish that, right? We did not have a 24-7 capability. And so we, we wanted a partner that could help us, you know, have a delivery basically at this point from 7 o'clock in the morning till about 9 o'clock at night. If you need to reach one of our advisors, you're going to be able to do that if you need to do it right away. And they're gonna be able to assist you and they're gonna be able to see what's going on, what's taking place. And... I think the last key piece to that, and Brian kind of commented this, is we wanted to, the program to be very plan and goal driven. It's going to start with the goals, but it's going to incorporate a full plan. And we wanted a partner that saw it that way, not just, hey, let's look at the goal and then what's the transaction to meet that immediate need. No, let's look at the goal and let's give you a plan uh, that incorporates how you meet that goal and then advance from there. Um, so that was really important, and it's a big transition for us. Those were very, very key drivers in our decision as to who we went with. Yeah, so you said a couple of cool things in there, and one of them reminded me of a discussion I had recently with an advisor uh, about doing work remotely in a collaborative way 24-7. Uh, so this is, this is an advisor who, who embraced remote technology before COVID even hit. Um, he's, he's based in, in the New Orleans area. And he, he said, Scott, he, he, let me describe this for you because I, I've, I love this remote technology. He said, he said, I was working with a client the other day who was sitting with his wife and I was doing a remote session with them. He had me on his iPad and we're talking about their retirement. And they're in their 50s, right? So 
I put up their their plan on the screen. Money they use Money Guide. Put up their plan on the screen, and my client said, "Hey, well, wait a second, I want to send this to my big screen TV." So uh, he's like, "All right, cool." So so the guy flips it over to you know via Apple TV to his big screen TV. So this advisor says, "Be all right now." Picture this. Here's a client that I'm working with sitting next to his wife. Their feet are up on their ottoman. I'm on their big screen TV. So is their retirement plan. They have a drink in hand, and we're talking about their retirement in the place that they're going to retire. It doesn't get much better than that. So I don't know if I'll ever do a, a, an in-person visit with them again, right? I mean, they just loved it. That's what's possible, and that's what we have to be ready for, right? I mean, that because that's tomorrow. That's that's where all this is is going. So, so it's interesting. Just just to expand on on your point, I I think it's incredibly important. Um, so, Kyle, I'm I'm glad to see you're back. <laughs> no, oh. Some technology <laughs> challenges there. Uh, but is there anything that you wanted to uh, to add to to this discussion on culture and technology? I, I don't want to reiterate what they've already said. A lot of it uh, holds true with with our program as well. I got to I got to say that going from a transactional gr- group of advisors down from 19 down to 11, at that point, I was so humbled that I that I wanted to be part of the Ameriprise culture. You know, it wasn't like I, I wanted my advisors to be a part of their culture, not the other way around. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. This discussion about culture, too, uh, is interesting because it used to be when I did these projects that the institution always wanted the broker dealer to match the culture and adapt to the culture of the institution. And and recently I'm seeing a shift in the other direction. The institutions are saying, no, we we want we want to select a broker dealer that has a really good culture. So it pulls our program in the direction of the broker dealer. I'm hearing that more and more which is a very interesting shift, but I think uh, an important one, nonetheless. Hey, all right, so, yeah. I want to add one thing. When we went through the review of, uh, let's say, three that we deep dive, everybody had planning. It's on the shelf. They knew it was important to me, and so, therefore, they talked about it. But what really struck me is, and this is when you're selecting the broker-dealer, it was more like, did they believe right? Like, is this part of what they do? And so that's what really resonated with me as a potential client. Everybody had it on the shelf. So everything that I wanted was everywhere, right? Even in my current broker dealer, it was on the shelf. It was something that I could elect. uh, But it was kind of up to me as the leader of the group to go do it, go get it and then use it. Or it was up to the advisors to go get it and go use it. And so I was actually a little disappointed with some of the broker dealers when they were touting what they had on the shelf. They weren't listening to me and what I was, what I needed, which is I needed on the shelf, obviously, but I also needed a support mechanism to implement it on the front lines with my people, uh, whether it was marketing, whether it was, uh, te- you know, use of technology, whether it was growing segmenting their book, whether it was implementing planning, doing more insurance, like those were what was important to me as a, you know, strategic leader. And they all did that. They all had insurance on the shelf, but did they have people that could actually help my team get better and put it in motion? And and not many of them talked in that language. It was all about what they had on the shelf, if that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. And I completely agree with you. Ed, you you had a comment? Just real brief to follow that with Brian, you when you make your calls to these other 
programs that these broker dealers are recommending you speak to. You can ask some of those questions and find out what the broker dealer really does, right? You can reach out to some of them. They may give you three and you'll find they're all three doing it differently. Or you may reach out to a broker dealer partner and find out, nope, this is our system. This is what they use. And they're all three doing the same thing. And they're all three seeing unusually high levels of success. And that was a key factor for us as well, right? You, you can find out what the broker dealer really believes at that point and do their programs really implement that or do they allow the programs to dictate what's implemented? Yeah, no, it's a good point. And, and, and as far as reference checking goes, uh, I, I, I never ask the broker dealer for references. I just call people I know that are working with that broker dealer because the broker dealer is always going to give you references that are going to reflect a really good light on them, right? Obviously. Um, so I, 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 I don't do that. And, but asking those pointed questions that are, are exactly the way to go because, you know, you, you need to learn what, what's in their DNA. And that's what Brian, you were referring to as well, right? Is planning in their DNA. And the reason why, back to what Kyle said, the, the reason why I see more and more institutions saying, no, we want to adapt to the culture of the broker dealer is because of things like planning. They basically admit, we, we have a transactional nature here and we don't want that anymore. We want to transition to more of a planning nature or more of an advisory nature, you know, more towards the RIA side of the spectrum. And that's not going to happen if we keep on supporting the culture we have here. So we need to, we need this culture to be influenced by a good broker deal that can pull us in the right direction. All right, so we only have a couple minutes left. Uh, but the last question I have for you guys, and just go around the horn, um, in, including you, Jay, is there uh, advice that you have for the people that are listening uh, that will help them make the conversion as painless as possible? And maybe Ed, you can kick us off, and then we'll go to to uh, Kyle and Brian. Then Jay, you can you can you can end it for us. Yeah, Ed? I know we're I know we're short on time, but uh, one, take your time. Don't rush the process because there's a lot of information that you gather as you take your time that you think you have a clear understanding of where they are, and then the, as you dig deeper into that, you will find out that, hey, this is not going to be the fit that we thought it was going to be. In fact, we when we got down to our final three, we thought we had a, we really thought we had a number one, a number one, and a number three. And then so we, we really had to dig deeper into that. Um, and as we did, we found out that, no, we have a number one, we have a number two, and we have a number three, because there were things that we thought were going to take place that just this didn't and then when we finally dug deeper that you know one of the broker dealers finally said well that's going to be something we would have to implement four or five years from now we can't meet your need at this point and that was really okay that threw them from the other number one down to the number two so i think taking your time in the process is most important uh, don't rush it you know you know where you want to go you know you want to get there but sometimes take, you know, taking your time is going to help you avoid some of the mistakes that you might look back and kick yourself over. So for me, it was definitely taking your time. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, uh, Kyle? I would say that we have done a really, we've, done, we've made a lot of hires. Forget the conversion for a second. Just the, just the hires that we've made in the last 24 months. If you listen to the onboarding specialist, it's going to be different than what you think. But if you listen to them, the ones that we have uh, had 90% convert in 90 days, they all listened and followed the system. It's a little confusing. It's not, you don't meet with one client and do one thing at a time. You don't do one household at a time. It's a process. And so my suggestion is to follow it. And then the second thing would be is under promise, as far as time frame goes, when you're meeting with your clients, under promise and over deliver on time frame. So don't tell them if you think it's going to be two weeks, 
tell them it's going to be three weeks and surprise them with two weeks. Yeah, yeah, that's it's good, good stuff. Um, so Jay, bring it on home. All right. I, you know what I would say? Uh, first of all, I think you've all been great comments. If I was speaking to the audience on the call, um, you know, when you align with your executives of what you want, and right now creating that client member experience is or is what institutions are looking for. Um, and then you make that selection and you know why you're making that change. Um, the definition of leadership or a leader is someone that affects positive change. Just make that commitment. Conversions are not easy. RFPs aren't easy. But if you know where you're going and you've got a mountain to climb and you rally the troops and you climb that mountain, you realize I'm at a better spot. My, my members, my clients are at a better spot. My advisors are a better spot. You know, and the executives in my institutions are, are achieving their goal, which is a better member experience. So keeping that front in mind of why we're doing this, you get through the hiccups uh, and you get to a really good spot. Yeah, agreed. All right. Uh, appreciate it, you guys. You know, Brian, Jay, Kyle, Ed, you, you guys are awesome. Thank you for, for all your time. And, and I hope this was valuable to those of you are, uh, that are listening. So uh, thank you, everybody. And goodbye. Bye, everybody. Thank you, Scott. Hi, Bob Mattel again. Scott and I want to thank you for joining us for this episode of Industry Leadership and Success. We hope you found the discussion enjoyable and valuable. We'd again like to thank Ameriprise for partnering with us to make this episode possible and also express our appreciation to our panelists. Edward Bronnenberg from Randolph Brooks. Jay McAnally of Ameriprise Financial Institutions Group. Kyle Stroud of Sentinel and Brian Venn of California Credit Union. Don't forget to subscribe to our two other podcast series, Untangling FinTech and BISA Industry Trend Watch. And now I'll use my seriously official voice for the required disclosures. Not federally insured. No financial institution guarantee. May lose value. Ameriprise Financial Inc. is not affiliated with Scott Stathis or Stathis Partners or Edward Bronnenberg or the financial institutions. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services LLC, a registered investment advisor. Securities offered by Ameriprise Financial Services LLC Member FINRA, FINRA, and SIPC. Copyright 2021, Ameriprise Financial, Inc. All rights reserved.